1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 252 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm good. That's Thank you. Good. good. <laughs> um, did you hear that small voice? I'm
0: good. Yes. She squeaked from holiday school holiday land.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, school holiday land. No wonder I'm loving life right now.
0: I know. Yes, <laughs> I know. No, I'm also loving life right now. I'm just a little. You know, busy, and also I got slightly confused because I keep thinking it's Monday and it's not. Which you know, the public holiday weekend will do to you. So
1: confusing, I know. Mm. Yes, Mm. and to top it all off, we're coming up to daylight saving, even more confusion.
0: Oh yeah, is that so? Do you know what? I thought I actually had a feeling that that was yesterday. No, no. Well, you know, it was one of those days where I thought I suddenly got halfway through the day and thought, oh wait a minute, Mm. am I supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> it supposed to be on another time now. And I got very confused. It, took, it doesn't take much to confuse me at the moment. It's been a long term at school. What can I You'd say? You've had
1: a busy month last month. So I, I think have. You and do you know what? Break.
0: I am off to the Burdekin Readers and Writers Festival next week. So wow, n- it where hasn't is that? even ended. I am still, the, the authorial blazer is currently being dry cleaned, ready to go again. Wow. Where is the Burdekin? it's it's in air sunny air which is up near townsville and is actually the hometown of my beloved father oh i know and i'll be going to air high school air state school i'm actually doing quite a lot of high school visits which is a little bit surprising for me i'm somewhat you know i'm bracing myself for that because it's not my usual Mm. sort of spot um but as we discussed, I, as dad and I discussed the other day, I need to check the wall while I'm there. The wall? Because apparently, yeah, the wall, you know, the wall of glory. Because mm-hmm. apparently he was um, not school captain, because they didn't call it school captain back in the day, but he was the head prefect at Air High oh. School.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. So I'm going. You know, I'm 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 sort of like going to be doing some fairly serious, you know, walking in on hallowed territory while I'm there, which is quite fun.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. I know it's a thing. It's big. Yeah. How cool mm-hmm. is that? Mike. I know. Uh, Sorry.
1: No. No. You're gone.
0: I was going to say, and I'm looking forward to seeing, um, so you might remember that with the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival recently, mm-hmm. um, Melina Marchetta yes. came along to that and I interviewed her um, for one of the sessions, which was fantastic. But uh, we'll be catching up again because she um, also has family connections in air and oh. she is also appearing at the Burdekin, um Readers and Writers Festival. So it's going to be like a little bit of a, um, you know, I don't know, what do you call it? Like a, it's It's a little bit like a family reunion in a funny way because nice. everybody up there seems to be, Related, related to somebody in some way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well no and I and I only say that because um my dad is as well as being the head prefect at Air High School back in the day, was is also a mad and I do mean mad, um, family history dude. Like he's oh, a genealogist. Ooh. So so he he did our whole family. So he did his whole family, my mom's whole family. And when I say whole family, I'm talking we're, we're talking back into the dark ages here. Yes. Um, and then he kind of that he felt like he'd done that. So then he moved on to all of our partners' families. So mm. my husband's family, you know, everybody, all the brothers-in-law, the sister-in-law, all their families. And um, and then he randomly now is working on a family history of air
1: connections. Oh
0: wow! Okay. Theme. So I am speaking I am speaking from somewhat of a position of of knowledge here when I say that you know there's a lot of you know relations.
1: Yes, were there, there any set surprises any kind of secret families
0: or anything that a bit um, I'm not scandalous. exactly sure to be honest we might have to get him on and ask yeah. him you know in we can go in depth here but I don't know if that would be a good idea because oh, I, yeah. I feel sometimes that it's better not to know. Don't you think?
1: <laughs> No, I really I'd like honest, to know. Well, I don't know. I
0: kind of feel like it's better not to know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a big shout out to everyone in air. You're going to be able to catch up with Alison very soon. So I know. shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing?
0: Let's do that. But before we do that, I have a little thing that I would like to share with everyone because I know that there are lots and lots of um parents out there, parents and carers out there who've suddenly got all of these um teenagers on their hands. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that I know right now, it is that there are a lot of desperate parents and carers out there looking for books for 13 and 14 year old boys. Oh yeah. And do you know do you know how I know this? I will tell mm-hmm. you how I know this because I have a post on my website called Twenty One Tried and Tested Books for 13 and 14 year old boys. Mm. And it is the singular the singular most popular post that I have ever written on my blog in ten years. Wow. It, it has it gets more traffic than anything I have ever done. And I'm not quite sure how that makes me feel. But anyway, um, so I've done uh, in the lead up to the holidays, I have done a an updated version. A new version, a new list called "15 More Tried and Tested Boys for 13 and uh, Tried and Tested Books Rather for Mm. 13 and 14 Year Old Boys." And then I have 13 that are recommended by an expert, and the expert is Trish Buckley, and she is a a teacher librarian and an Mm. extremely cool lady, and she does a lot of YA reviewing, so she's recommended some books. Um, So I just wanted to to let you all know that that's there. If you are one of the people who is desperately Googling books for 13, 14-year-old boys, uh, there is a brand new list there for you just in time for the holidays and I hope that you will make full and fulsome use of it.
1: Absolutely. And we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobearider.com.au or just head on over to Alison's website, AllisonTate.com, and hunt around for it and you'll find it there. Hmm. Wow, that's um, an awesome list. All right, so we have our links this week and you have a cool link uh, which is two words that
0: are deadly to your writing career. Is that right? It is, Val. And the reason that I'm sharing this link, I'm actually sharing this link specifically for you, Val. For me. Specifically for you. So, this is on a website called writingandwellness.com. Mm. And it's all about empowering, nourishing, and replenishing the creator within, which mm. is, you know, it sort all of sounds very good. Um, but this popped up, and I thought, oh, when I read it, because I thought, wow, what a, for starters, let's just talk about that headline being excellent, two yes. words that are deadly to your writing career. Wish I'd thought of that. Um, but I'm also surprised that you didn't think of it because <laughs> I'm reading through this post. <laughs> and it's written by Colleen on this website. And it's all about how Colleen's been speaking at writers' festivals and conferences over the last few years, and she's talked to an enormous number of aspiring and experienced writers, and they all come to her with questions about one thing or another, and I'm sure that you can relate to this because I can certainly relate to this. And she says that she can tell within 60 seconds, whether the writer is going to go on to experience great things or whether his or her career will stall for an unknown amount of time. And it all comes back to two very telling words that come out of the writer's mouth. And I probably don't even need to tell you what these are, Val, but I'm going to anyway. (laughs) The two words are yes, but. Oh, yes. Now, I share this with Valerie, and if you're new to the podcast, I'm not sure if we've ever discussed this before. We may have done, um, but um, I share this with you, Valerie, because I know from many conversations with you over many, many years that yes, but combined mm. is pretty much your one of your least favourite combinations of words ever. Mm.
1: Absolutely. I just Do you think want to that, tell us uh, why? <laughs> well, I mean, I think this, this is so true, two words that are deadly to your writing career because I meet so many, as you would as well, meet so many different types of writers from different walks of life and Colleen, who wrote this, is absolutely correct in you can tell very, very quickly whether this is going to be a writer that's going to make it or whether this is a writer that's just not. Quite frankly, um, and that is because of these two words. Yes, but, and we've all heard it before. Yes, but I've just got to wait till the kids go on school holidays or get stop. You know, go back to school. Yes, but I really just need to make sure I have my writing set up because I can't concentrate with the light when it doesn't shine exactly in that at that angle. Yes, but whatever, and there could be a whole host of excuses. You know, you can blame other people. You can blame your family. You can blame your your work situation because it's too demanding or too stressful or whatever that you can't then, um, you know, let your creativity flow. Um, I, I, I really often hear, yes, but by the time I get home from work, I'm too tired to be able to write. And Yes, you may well be tired, but the reality is you actually aren't going to produce that book or improve your writing unless you do write. So you need to work out strategies to be able to do that. So yes, but is purely a form of excuse. Yes, but is just um, you trying to convince yourself that you have the goods and the talent, which you do, but you are saying that it's because of all these other reasons that aren't you. That is stopping you from letting that talent shine. But the reality is, you are the only person stopping yourself from letting your talent shine. The talent that it's already in there, and the and the creativity that's already in there that's busting to get out. But you are the handbrake. Yes, but means that you are stopping yourself, not actually whatever it is that you're blaming. That's just something you're making up because. Yeah. You can. You just need to find the strategies and create a framework that enables you to, yes, I'm going to do that. It's all about being proactive. And when you say, yes, I can do that, and you're moving forward instead of basically stalling yourself, then you're going to get there so much, so much quicker. It's so true that this is, Um, this is, there, yeah, those two words are deadly, literally deadly to your writing career.
0: They are like it's one of those situations though like it's you know the thing is that when you when somebody asks you f- for advice about something or like I've had situations where someone's asked me to read a first chapter or whatever of a story and I've read the chapter and I've gone back to them and I've said look you actually need to lob 3000 words off the start of this or you've started in the wrong place or actually you don't need this chapter at all or whatever and of course what they say is yes but you don't understand because it's going to be explained in chapter three, or yes, but you know down the track it's going to be this. So what people are saying is yes, I hear you, mm. but I'm going to ignore what you're saying, yeah, and that's, that's all right. That's okay, but it it becomes one of those situations. From and I I know how much this frustrates you, Val, because we've had many conversations about this. Um, it comes to the point of you ask you asking someone for their expert advice, and when they give it to you you're essentially saying to them upfront that you are going to ignore it because it doesn't suit what you want to hear. And it's very hard. And I have been on the receiving end of this and I have given you yes, but I know that I have, because there's a couple of situations that I have found myself in where I've been stuck with something or with someone and, you know, and Val being Val, she listens to me and she's very, very caring and sharing. And then being Val, she says, yeah, you need to get out of this. This is not working. Why are you doing? Why are you doing this? Is is what Val often says to me. Mm-mm. Why would you do this, Al? And I go, well, yes, but you know, blah blah. And I can hear myself doing it. And as soon as I hear myself say yes, but, <laughs> I know that I am falling into the same trap that you know people also fall into. It's only human. It's not, you know, this is not us criticizing. But what we're, what we're mm-hmm. trying to do is say. Recognize those words when you are saying them. Yeah. Recognize yes. what you're doing. Recognize that what you're saying is, I hear what you're saying. It is not what I want to hear, because mm. that's essentially what you are saying. Um. And if you find yourself going yes but, you've really got to drill down into what's at play here. Like, what exactly mm. is the problem? Because there was one situation that I yes butted Val on for quite some time, mm-hmm. and I look back on it now. Um. And I, I I kick myself. I kick myself because I wasted a year. Mm-hmm. I, I did. I wasted a year and it kind of derailed me a little bit. And I think if I had actually acted on what I knew in my gut I needed to do, I wouldn't have wasted that year. So I'm just saying All I think all we want to do with this particular post and with mm-hmm. this conversation with Val because I knew this would kick her off. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm just I'm just saying I knew what I was doing here. Mm-hmm. Um um, is if you are you will hear yourself say it recognize it mm. and then start to think about why you're not going to change your behavior overnight the, the yes but is going to be with you for a while but if you can push past why it is that you're resisting then you probably will find that you can make those decisions you can find the courage to make decisions that maybe you know you really do need to make. Yeah, for yourself. So this this particular post is well well worth reading because it explains a few different situations when you know this when Colleen has um has come across the yes but, and um it's definitely one that's worth having having a look at. I think particularly yep. if you you know, and you're gonna you, you I'm I swear that now you will recognize those words when you say them and I Mm. hope that you stop and think about what it is that you're resisting.
1: Yep. And somebody told me very recently that they have a word for this and I'm not sure whether I would necessarily use this word but uh, they have a word for this and they say that the yes but people are ask, A-S-K, ask holes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they ask you to take the time to give advice and opinion and then they completely ignore you and tell you why they can't take your
0: advice and opinion. Yeah. I had a situation where I I think I was doing a write a book with Al and I'd posted a word count and somebody got very cross with me hmm. about it and went right. to great lengths, great lengths to tweet me about why they couldn't possibly Right why they couldn't mm. be writing, and all I could think as I looked at these twenty tweets lined up was if you'd <laughs> taken the time to actually write, yeah you'd use that time, you would have written two hundred and fifty words yeah as opposed to telling me in twenty tweets why oh you can't possibly goodness. do it, That's so insane. that was a really interesting moment, and that was that was another really good lesson for me well, another good you know that was that was turn off Twitter and walk away, out. <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> Which is what I did right at that point. But it's worth recognising, it is worth having enough self-awareness sometimes to recognise when you're doing it because you will then start to question what it is that you're resisting. And usually mm. mostly, most of the time, it's because it's hard, you know. It's yes. somebody's telling you what you want to hear is you're a genius and, you know, if only you had an extra hour in your day, you'd be totally fine. But what the person is actually telling you is, you actually need to make that, you know, fifteen minutes a day, ten minutes a day, whatever it is that you need to do. Um, and it's hard; it takes effort. And so, mm-hmm. most yes, but is a pushback against, you know, changing things and making the effort. And and I, I just, just all I'm saying is, um, it takes time to to kind of work through it. But recognize that if you're doing it, because that's the first step.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our next link is why I write, why I only write for 15 minutes a day and it's from a uh, blog called The Writing Pal and we'll put the link in the show notes. But why did you pick this one, Al? Al?
0: Um, I think I picked this one because I'm kind of feeling a little bit like this at the moment myself um, in that sense that – and this is not a yes but moment, trust me. Um, <laughs> this is just like I – you know, we've discussed at length that, you know, I've had a pretty busy term with promotion, stuff, with presentations, with travel, with all of the different things, and I have been feeling, and I know that I understand that feeling of 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 having that. I, I must write. I must write. I need to be writing. I need to be writing, and not writing, and getting cranky with myself for not writing because I'm so busy doing all of these other things. So I'm just here to say that I I understand. You know, it's not. I'm I'm not. Um, this is a practice what you preach kind of a situation. So when I saw this, why I only write for 15 minutes a day, it just was a kind of a nice little reminder to me that we talk regularly about the importance of those little slips and cracks of time and we talk about the fact that you can actually get quite a lot done in 10 minutes or 15 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting with this post is that this person chooses to only write for 15 minutes a day Mm. so even if they did have more time they will still only do the 15 minutes a day so i found this to be quite an interesting approach because most of us think you know like i'll do 10 minutes a day because that's all i've got but tomorrow i'll try for the hour or whatever this particular person um and it's on the blog the writing pal um it's written by shelby um she only writes for fifteen minutes a day, and she does it for a couple of different reasons. She has she's a mother with young children. Mm. She doesn't have a lot of time. But one of the things I loved about this is that one of the reasons she does this is because she she has it gives her a feeling of accomplishment. Mm. See, some people would go, "I've only written for fifteen minutes. This is ridiculous. I've only managed a hundred words. Whatever." She actually looks at she flips that on it on its head and goes. I've managed 15 minutes, I have accomplished something that I didn't think I would do Mm. without that 15 minutes. But you get into the habit of writing 15 minutes a day and she manages to, she gets something on the page and that gives her a feeling of accomplishment. And that feeling of accomplishment is a great way to build kind of a momentum, but also it gets rid of that angsty feeling that I am having at the moment of being a writer who is not writing.
1: Mm. Because 15 minutes is so doable. Like it is incredibly doable. Yeah, you can, you know, sit in the car and do it while you're waiting Mm -hmm. or you can be in the doctor's surgery or you can grab 15 minutes here or there even on the bus or whatever. It's just so doable. And if you kind of instead thought, okay, no, I need to carve out two hours on a Sunday afternoon, that's actually harder to carve out. It is a lot harder to carve days. out,
0: but mm. to be, to walk away knowing that you've accomplished something, knowing that you've added some words to your manuscript, knowing that you've created a scene, knowing that you've got something to jump off on. From because mm. that's the other thing is you know sometimes you kind of it's just that notion of of the the forward movement of your yes. manuscript. And then once you're doing that, then it's building your ideas because, you know, while you're walking, while you're doing all these other things that you have to do each day, you're, you're thinking about the next thing. You're not still thinking about that thing that you've been thinking about for three weeks, but you haven't got around to writing down yet. And I think that that's, that, that feeling of accomplishment is probably one of the main, that's one of the main things I actually took out of this blog post was yeah. just that thing of, yes, you're right. That's exactly what needs to happen. That's awesome. Mm. All
1: right, let's move on. We want to thank everyone who took part in furious fiction september so that is the awesome short story competition the awesome short story competition that we have going every month on the first friday every, every month the challenge was to write a story set in an airport and include the word spring and the phrase it was empty We received hundreds of amazing entries and congratulations to Michael McGoldrick who scored the $500 prize for his winning story. Now, if you're ready to do it all over again, Furious Fiction October kicks off on Friday, 5th of October with another Mm. exciting new challenge. So make sure you're in the fan club. It's free to join and each challenge will be sent to you as soon as it's live. So that is the first Friday of every month. Furious Fiction short story competition starts at 5 p.m. on the Friday and then you have 55 hours to write 500 words and you win $500 prize money. So mm, join a lot the of fan Fs. Club. Yeah, lots of Fs. Go to the fan club at furiousfiction.com.au to make sure you're on the list so we can send you the details.
0: Can I also say before we move on from that yes. that the fan club, is such a great place because the fan club is so supportive. So So being – so, you know, keeping an eye on the Writers' Centre social media – As the lead up to the fiction, as Shafira's fiction comes up, you you start to see the same people and they're all talking to each other on Mm. Twitter and they're all psyching themselves up and then it launches and they're all supporting each other through Mm. the weekend and they're all cheering when they get it done and, you know, it's just so nice to see. Big shout out to Ray C who is involved in that and there's a few other people but incredibly supportive and it's it's so lovely to see people, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, et cetera, et cetera, and it's brilliant to see everyone just Getting involved and giving it their best shot and being so incredibly happy and excited for each other that a they get the thing completed, which is not easy, and b you know for the winners etc. when they when those announcements are made. So yeah, the fan club is a top spot and it's a it's a great space if you're particularly if you're an isolated writer, these kinds of things are a terrific way to find your people. Exactly.
1: Find your people. All right. So let's move on to the giveaway this week. I'm very excited because the giveaway, we have three copies of Into the Night by award-winning author and Australian writer-center graduate Sarah Bailey, who we will be talking to later in this episode. So Sarah Bailey's acclaimed debut novel, The Dark Lake, was a bestseller around the world. And her suspenseful storytelling earned her fitting comparisons with Gillian Flynn and Paula Hawkins. So Into the Night is now her second novel, and it is an awesome crime novel featuring the troubled and brilliant Detective Sergeant Gemma Woodstock, who is such an interesting character. And it's a brilliant, brilliant, stunning follow-up to The Dark Lake. So if you're interested in getting your copy, we have three copies to give away. So enter the competition at writercenter.com dot au slash win entries close on the eighth of October so go to writers dot com dot au slash win now ow <laughs> <laughs> are you ready for the word of the week
0: oh I could not be more ready
1: for- <laughs> <laughs> that's so good so Freuder I read this mm. during the week, like in a magazine article. So, and I thought this really? is such a cool word. Yeah, f- yeah, definitely. It was like in Good Weekend or the Australian magazine or something. So, Freuder, that's F R O I D E U R. Hmm. Have you heard of it?
0: No. <laughs> Freuder. I'm incredibly surprised that you've read it in a magazine. Article. Yeah,
1: I did. I did. Wow. Um, this week. So, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means a lack of cordiality or reserve. So, you might say his Freudeur reflected his total lack of interest in the project. Hmm. Mm. Freudeur. And people Do you think like I'm showing
0: – am I showing Freudeur towards your
1: word? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Surely not. I
1: hope not. Hashtag
0: Freuder. <laughs> I hope
1: not. Is that
0: really how you say
1: it? I think so, yeah, because it comes from the French, and that would be how you say it, okay. I think. All right. <laughs> how would you say it? I don't know. Okay. All right, so let's move on to this week's writer in residence, who, as I mentioned, is the lovely and talented Sarah Bailey. I just love Sarah's story because Sarah came to us as um, a student in the creative writing course at the Australian Writers Centre, and has since gone on to kick such amazing goals. Um, first with her debut novel, which won all sorts of awards, and now with Into the Night, she has continued her success. So without further ado let's have a chat to Sarah Bailey. Thanks for joining us today Sarah. Oh thanks so much for having me. First congratulations this is your second novel Into the Night and the first one was just You know, I was riveted. It was a seamless, (laughs) wonderful read, and this second one is no different. It's just as amazing. So, congratulations! Well done.
2: (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. It is um, what they say about the second book is pretty true. So, um, it's really nice to hear that.
1: What and what do you? What do? How do you describe what they say about the second book?
2: Uh, Well, it's sort of that. I think it's such an unfair thing because even though you've written a book, you you still have all of the same doubts um, Mm -hmm. all over again. But I think actually worse because you start to um, wonder whether or not perhaps you just fluked the first one. So (laughs) it's this really strange mix of um, sort of knowing that you can do it because you've done it before. So there is sort of a confidence that comes from that. But um, I think deep down you're also really worried that the scrutiny will be heightened and people won't give you as much of a break with the second one. So um, I didn't experience too much of it when I was writing it, but I certainly started to get quite nervous once it was at the printers and um, I couldn't change it. (laughs) And I was just waiting for the first um, few reviews and, you know, things like that. So. Yeah, it's, it's
1: nerve-wracking. It's so true. The pressure of the Sophomore Act is is very real because people are wondering, oh, can she follow it up? Um, but you absolutely have. Now, before we go on, for some of the listeners who haven't read your book yet, and, you know, the, the first book, of course, was The Dark Lake, and um, uh, I believe this can be read as a standalone, even though it's a continuation um, of the same character. Just tell listeners... Um, what Into the Night is about.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean,
1: I, I guess with The Dark Lake, it was very much a um, introduction
2: to the character of Detective Gemma Woodstock. It's a very, um, in a way, traditional police procedural, but it's mixed closely with a personal aspect of her life. And the two um, things, the homicide investigation she's working on and uh, and a secret from her past sort of parallel and, and you sort of um, I guess witness how those unfold next to each other in the dark lake um that ends um obviously, I won't give away how it, how it ends, but mm-hmm. it sort of has an ending um and then in the sequel into the night, it's set about two and a half years later, which is allowed um a little bit of space, I suppose, for the characters to develop and for things to shift and change a little bit. It was certainly beneficial for me to have that distance from the the ending of the first book. Um, and in the second book, it's a big shift of location. So Gemma moves from a fictional regional town in New South Wales to Melbourne, um, real Melbourne, and um, she is thrown immediately into several different homicide investigations that she works on with her new colleagues. She's only been in Melbourne for about three months when the book starts. So, um, yeah, she's really still adjusting to this new life, new world, new peers, new challenges. Um, And she's also um, yet again got, I guess, a personal journey to navigate as that's sort of going on in the background.
1: Yeah. Now, as you say, there's been a shift of location and it is two and a half years later. So why did you decide on that?
2: Um. I would love to say that it was really strategic Um, and in in hindsight, I guess it sort of was, but it was really instinctive when I sat down to sort of think about continuing this character's story. Um, I didn't plan a sequel when I wrote The Dark Lake. It wasn't something that um, was on my mind and it wasn't something that was sort of offered to me initially through the publication process. It came a bit later later. I guess, fortunately, by the time the publishers did say to me that they were interested in a second book in the series, I had started to sort of play around with what might happen next. And I think I've discovered now that that tends to be something that happens once I put the first draft to bed, I start to sort of um, think through what might, you know, sort of transpire after that book. Um, so I had, I had some ideas, um, but all of them were very much for me, needing a new, a new sort of start for Gemma, um, and I've said sort of this before. It's quite uh, in my mind, even though I'm not writing TV and I've I've got no experience whatsoever in screenwriting at all. I think I write it very much like a TV series in my mind, and I and I do feel like sometimes um, TV shows benefit from a little bit of a gear change in a different season and, you know, when you're doing a crime a crime story, obviously you've got a new crime to solve and that helps refresh and sort of regenerate everything and give you a new focus and a new sort of motivating drive. But I also felt Gemma needed that too. I, I just think that um, even though she's not a young person in the first book, she's sort of near 30, in many ways she is sort of like a coming-of-age um, narrative in the first book and I and I felt like she needed to really do that that jump shift and sort of move away from home and mm. um, leave leave the nest and really challenge herself um, in the second book so I felt like a new environment would um, provide her with that growth opportunity mm. uh, and I also just wanted some new characters and you know, it's not home and away. I couldn't kind of keep having all of these new people come to town <laughs> <laughs> in, such a, in such a country town kind of place. So mm. I thought I'll, I'll take her out of the town, uh, put her in Melbourne, uh, and then there's a whole lot of things that can happen in a city that sort of couldn't really happen in a country town, especially mm. case-wise. So, um, yeah, it was just a fun um, way to mix things up, I think.
1: Yeah, great. And so did the publisher want a sequel or to the obviously the, the first novel or were they interested in a second book that didn't have to follow on oh they
2: were very much uh, interested in, in a sequel mm-hmm. um i didn't really get the choice which was absolutely fine by me because that was the only idea that i had in my head so <laughs> it worked out right. well for everybody <laughs> um but yeah i was really surprised actually uh how free i had the opportunity to write the second book i got no Sort of direction, and I just was asked to write a second book in the Gemma series, and that was really it. So, um, I had complete reign to do whatever I, I liked, which was really great. Um, mm. and it wasn't really until I'd written about 50,000 words that I looped back with my publisher and sort of ran it all past her and, you know, wanted to make sure that she was comfortable with it, and she was. So, um, yeah, it was, it was great actually. I did feel like I had, as much as a series can provide you, a pretty fresh. Um, clean slate to work with
1: Mm, I feel like we get to know Gemma more in this there's more of what goes on in her head is was that something that you were doing on purpose or um or am I just imagining that
2: (laughs) (laughs) um I think I don't know I don't it wasn't sort of intentional in a way I think uh into the night is again first person um, perspective, and it's mm-hmm. it's not stream of consciousness, but it's pretty close. So um, I always say it's it's a very intimate style of writing. Um, I guess you do feel like you're in her head, you're with her all the time, and in the second book, you are you are with her all the time. Um, mm-hmm. In the first one, there's a couple of little breaks. Um, I call it the the country town great chorus sort of kicks in, mm-hmm. and, a, and a few different characters add some perspective. Um, that gives you the chance to see Gemma in a different light, which I felt was really important in that environment. Whereas in the second one, um, I guess I felt like you get some snippets um, of media transcriptions in the second one here and there, which sort of um, shows the big picture of how the city is reacting to some of the cases that she's working on. Mm. But mainly you're in her head. And so um, I think it just maybe is a case of a second book. Um, I know her a bit better. Yeah. So therefore, it's going to come through in the in the writing and the way that um she sort of narrates it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah,
2: it's nice. It's nice to hear you say that.
1: Yeah. So there is a real sense of place, as there was in your first book, where you really, really felt ah uh, that the atmosphere of the country town. And in this book, you've just captured Melbourne so well, and the the feeling when you're walking through the streets of Melbourne, the feeling of the Cold wind, which I yes. feel all the time <laughs> when I'm in Melbourne. What did you do? To I mean, I know you live in Melbourne, but they're they're just these little observations and little bits of commentary throughout that that really set that scene. Did you do anything in particular to to kind of take note of these little things that I feel make a lot of difference?
2: I I think I just got out and walked around in the city, which sounds pretty simplistic but it like really on purpose, was for this like purpose. on purpose yeah mm-hmm. with a bit more of in, an intent than normal and it's funny quite a lot of people have said to me um they assume I've grown up in a country town um mm-hmm. which I didn't at all so you know with the dark lake people would say oh what what town is that based on and I would mm-hmm. say it really is just an amalgamation of many and I and I don't have any personal experience of living in a country town so it's been really, really nice when people think that that's why that rang so true. With this one, I kind of had no excuse because I have lived <laughs> in Melbourne all my life and so I was probably a little bit more worried that people would think that it didn't ring true, um, which would have been a bit mortifying. But mm-hmm. um, it was funny when I went to write it and I you know, obviously decided to set it in Melbourne you would think that it would be so easy because it is my hometown, and I've uh, you know see it all the time, and I live quite close to the city, so it is sort of quite a familiar part of the of the place for me. But when you go to actually write about it, you realise how often you don't notice anything around you. So mm. I did deliberately spend quite a lot of time in the city writing, um, either in um, you know the library or just out and about in cafes, and just tried to be a little bit more conscious of what I was seeing around me and the different um, the ways that the geography kind of feeds into, you know, people's behaviour. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully I guess it, it all sort of comes together well. And I did also have the benefit of writing it in winter, which is when the book was set. <laughs> so that helped as well because I do find that really tedious time of the year. yes um, But, yeah, so, um, again, it's one of those things like I can never read my book fresh and I can't really say whether I think I've nailed something or not because, you know, there's all this, so many layers of subjectivity. But um, I've been very glad that people have sort of responded well to that part of the descriptions and, and the Melbourne setting. Mm.
1: Let's talk a little bit about research because obviously she is a detective sergeant and she's in the police service and um, she has to follow certain Um, procedures that would otherwise that that need to be authentic what kind of um, and also language that needs to be authentic what kind of research did you do to make sure that she is doing that well and everyone else all the other characters obviously who are in that world
2: yeah, sure. Um, so I, my method is very roundabout. I don't research first. I really feel, um, I think it's just because I know myself too well. I'm very impatient. I'm a fast worker and a fast writer. And I get really easily bored if I'm not making progress. So, um, my, my approach tends to be get the story down how I want the story to be. And that does mean that my first, first draft is, is pretty, pretty messy and pretty rough. Um it's got lots of gaps it's got lots of highlighted sections saying need to check this is this even possible you know question marks that kind of thing but at least i get the flow of the story down and what i sort of want the emotional journey to be um and then i have found so far <laughs> maybe i'll get stumped at some point but so far it seems to be that once i've got that structure down and that sort of arc sorted I can go back and fill in the gaps and I can mm. rearrange things around enough that it all works from a procedural perspective, a technology perspective, um, and I guess a pace perspective. Uh, I, I'm the first to admit that writing crime is really um, good for structure and um, a little bit of sort of rigidity. Like it really mm. gives you a framework to work within. However, that framework can also sometimes be quite um problematic because you know you you can't just skip a few days ahead you you sort of people need to know what's happening with the case in quite a sort of detailed way especially Mm -hmm. when the main character is a detective and not sort of just a Mm -hmm. a sort of um, you know normal person off the street so it's sort of a blessing and a curse and so I do find that I I sort of call it my 2.1 draft it's sort of like when I know the story is sort of going to be okay but it's so much work going back and fixing things and making them all work, that's when I do spend a lot of time um, on Google, a lot mm-hmm. of time um, researching um, other cases and sort of getting this, a sense of precedent um, and then also speaking to the handful of people that I've kind of now got um in my little network, I don't ever get them to read it because I actually don't want them to start picking apart the book um, based on how they would run a case. Mm. I just want them to ask, answer me specific questions in terms of, is this possible? Is this not possible? Yes or no? Yeah. Um, because I think it is fiction. I'm not trying to write true crime um, mm. or forensic, you know, analysis of, of how case would be exactly managed so I just need is this feasible yes or no I get quite lawyery about it <laughs> um, rather than sort of getting them to tell me how they would do it because mm. that I think wouldn't really work for the way I write my story. Did this
1: come from a, an experience or something where you did show someone something and they gave you that kind of feedback or or why do you assume that they'll do that? Ah. Uh, No, I think
2: it's more, well, A, it's just an awful, awfully big ask to get someone to read your book when it's not their profession. So I'm always really mindful of that because it, you know, it's 12 hours of time and, um, I, I, I'm not, you know, paying them particularly. So I, I sort of, that's something I'm conscious of. But I think it's also just, um, maybe my advertising background a little bit kicks in where, you know, if you start to say to a client, what what how would you want to fix this they will have a hundred thousand ideas for you Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily helpful what you really want to know is what's wrong with this Mm. tell me the problem and then I'll come back to you with a solution that Mm. kind of works for me and I think um I didn't I wasn't in a creative role in my agency life but I certainly was in a client facing role and that that sort of tricky dance um was something that I did for a really long time and I think um, everyone knows that feeling when someone tells you how they think something should be done versus just says to you, look, this isn't quite working. You need mm. to go back and think about it. And so that's sort of what I'm wanting is just that problem identification as opposed to I've got an idea. Here's all the different ways <laughs> yes. this could be fixed. So um, yeah, it so works for me, but it's a bit of a muddle. Yeah.
1: So who is in your little network of people that, re, re, that you know, you, you check things with? I mean, not necessarily actual names of people, but, you know, what oh, kinds yeah, of sure. people?
2: Yeah. So I've got a, a doctor um, friend that is just really interested in the fact that I write books. So he's mm-hmm. always more than happy to answer any um medical related questions and that does pop up in crime fiction more than you probably you know think Mm. so he's been really great just in terms of yes possible no not possible or a bit weird but I've heard of it that kind of that kind of um yes or no Mm. um and then I've got um someone I met a little while ago who's actually um the mother of a um, female detective and she's just really great from a Observational perspective. She sort of has this real sort of um, great way of observing her, the, what her daughter goes through and has that really nice description and sort of um, emotionally is quite a good reference point for bits and pieces. So Um, She's been really helpful. Um, And then there's a few other people I've met through um, a writing organisation who have access to um, cops and detectives and forensic type people. So when it comes to those questions, if I can't find them on the internet, then I've got someone I can go to and and sort of just have a few quick Q&As.
1: And so with Into the Night, what what part of it or, or how much of it was swirling in your brain when you started writing, did you already plot it plot it out, or did you discover what was going to happen as you were writing it? And also related to that, you, you yes. there's obviously the plot, as in the the crime that needs solving, but there is, as you say, the emotional journey. Which of those two aspects had you did you already know um, was going to happen as well?
2: Uh, I would say that. Into the Night was the least plotted book that I've written so far and I say Mm -hmm. that um, based on the first one and then the one I've just turned in the draft for, which is the third book in the series. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why. I think the premise was very, very clear in my mind, Um, sort of almost like the blurb was really clear, I suppose. So I I sort of knew she would move to Melbourne. I knew she would feel torn about um, leaving her family I knew that she would work this big um, case of a a homeless person and then that would be interrupted by a celebrity because I really liked the juxtaposition between those two um, homicides. Mm -hmm. And then I knew that she would um, be struggling with some of the um, new colleagues in her workplace and be feeling quite torn about starting this new life. So those were the things that were really clear to me. Um, Once I've got the the premise of the crime. I find it my brain just kind of rolls out the the possible cast of characters who um, all the different motivations as to why they may or may not be guilty. Um, and I think like I mean what I tend to like in terms of books that I read is where you really feel like it could have easily been four or five plausible people by the time you get to the end of the book um mm. you want the person that it's revealed to be the killer to make complete sense and never be a weird sort of completely from left field yes. solution but you want you want it to be the best of a couple of options um so in a way you almost write the book with with lots of killers possible and then at the last minute one of them just kind of you know sticks their neck out a little bit further and is clearly the one that always Um, had to have done it because their motivation was so much stronger. So Mm -hmm. I find that part of it um, doesn't write itself. (laughs) It definitely doesn't write (laughs) itself because that sounds really flippant and it certainly didn't feel like it did write itself. But it kind of has a momentum of its own. So once Mm -hmm. you get going um, and once I've sort of cast everybody, there's lots of different ways that the pace of the book can be driven forward with their different motivations and um, I guess the reactions to people finding secrets out and things like that mm. um, and then and then the, and then the emotional sort of journey of Gemma I guess just ticks along as this constant underneath it so um, it's it's a bit less dramatic normally than the crime which tends to be the thing that that really drives the pace forward um, but I definitely found it a bit difficult in the second book compared to the first where in the first, uh, the the personal aspects of her life and the case were so tightly interwoven they sort yep. of played off each other. Um, in the second book, that was less so, um, and and rightly less so. So I did have to, I think, manipulate the the words that I'd gotten down in the first draft a bit more to sort of really pull it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a strange um, process, and I'm not a great plotter. It just doesn't seem to really work for me. I'm a really good um, coming up with a premise person. Mm. (laughs) I have like probably about 12 books that I think are really amazing ideas. But (laughs) um, unfortunately, it seems like until I write at least sort of 30,000 words, I can't actually quite tell if that's true or not. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a bit of a risky... risky venture to, to kick something yeah. off and, and give it a shot. But um <laughs> yeah, I think the Gemma I think the character of Gemma helps drive drive the ideas that I have forward. It gives it more of a structure. So um, you know, I, I all of the Gemma books I've started I've I've finished. Um, yeah she's such or an not, interesting character. Yeah, and now I'm you know, I guess I'm a bit more instinctive about what she's about, what what she'll do, how she'll respond to things, how she's grown, all of those types of um, sort of scenarios. So it makes it a bit easier to, to pull a story around that person, I guess.
1: So, the other world that's kind of in this novel is, um, apart from the world of police, uh, mm. as you mentioned, there's, the, and this isn't a spoiler because it happens at the beginning. The, yeah, sure. the crime is that, you know, a, a celebrity is, um, dead. And so the other world is the world of television and film and entertainment and celebrity. What did you have to do, if anything, to get to know? that world or certain aspects of that world in order for you to include it and be realistic and authentic?
2: Uh, not Probably not too much for that world to be painted because um, I have worked in advertising for sort of almost 15 years. Not that that's the same as being a celebrity at all, but you are sort of exposed to film shoots and um, mm, yeah. how crews work and And for the purposes of the the book, you know, it doesn't go into incredible technical details. So my knowledge was probably about the right amount of knowledge to include anyway. Um, And then I guess I just took a little bit more notice about um, different ways that the media was reporting on things that were happening in real time. I did look into a couple of the cases that have um, happened in the past where people um were injured on film sets, and there was a mm. like a suspicious element to that, which was really interesting. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't that wasn't a huge amount of research that was required. It was more that I was cautious about making sure that it didn't get too silly. I remember right. when I first described the premise to my publisher, I think, You know, I sort of said, oh, there's a a zombie movie that's being shot in the city and and the celebrity gets killed on set and that's that's the case that she's working on and I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, this sounds so (laughs) stupid and kind of over the top and ridiculous. Um, But she, you know, she's like, I love it, sounds great, sounds really different, Um, I trust that it'll be fine. But I was quite conscious of making sure it never veered into silly celebrity and that it was quite Mm -hmm. – Genuine, because you know, it did sound a bit crazy. um, Sure. But I think, I don't think that ended up being a problem. I think because it was, you know, a serious kind of death and it wasn't silly in any way, that it was fine. But um, yeah, I did have to kind of just keep myself in check a
1: bit. (laughs) And I have to say, it's pretty real because I do believe that the last zombie movie that was filmed in Melbourne was actually filmed. At the Abbotsford Convent, where yes. which is where yep. you first came into contact with the Australian Writers' Centre because you did the creative writing course there. And that, this yeah, is true. <laughs> in the Abbotsford Convent there was definitely a zombie movie um being filled over quite a period of time. Um now that must full circle, seem,
2: yep. Yeah, full
1: <laughs> circle. That must seem like such a long time ago but it wasn't really that long ago um when you did the creative writing course when you did it there did at the Australian Writers Centre did you ever think that you would be you know now your second novel's out your third you've just handed that in did you ever imagine that that was gonna or or what did you imagine was gonna come out of it
2: (laughs) I absolutely never imagined anything like this it's been a pretty crazy couple of years um I really hoped that I would finish a book that maybe someone would publish that was that was really the extent of my fantasy sort of slash goal um because I just really wanted to write a book, and I have talked to people a lot about this in the last little while, and it's such a strange thing to want, and you can't quite describe why you want it or where these desires come from, but it's something that it just doesn't go away, I think, once it's in your head. So mm. um, mine certainly got put on hold for quite a few years when I got you know busy with work and other bits and pieces. And then I just had this thought a few years ago that it was something I really wanted to do. And mm. if I really wanted to do it, the only way uh, to get it done was to sort of carve out some time in my life to get the words down. So um, the course was sort of a bit of a step for me to sort of um, I guess tell myself I was taking it seriously and also to not be so arrogant as to think that I didn't need a little bit of a nudge along and a refresher of sort of you know basic writing skills and um, and how how to structure a book so it was such a great um, such a great permission-based opportunity I think for me to kind of go yep you know this is something that I can do I just have to I just have to sit down and do it so Mm. yeah but it was definitely not something that I necessarily thought was going to lead to books multiple being published for Mm. sure
1: (laughs) so exciting so um how do you carve out the time are you writing around a day j-job currently what 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 what's your day look like or your week look like in terms of where you spend your time Yeah,
2: so it's changed a lot in this past sort of six months. So up Mm -hmm. until um, January this year, I was working uh, pretty much full-time and um, I got really good at sort of snatching little moments of time here and there and actually turning those into chapters and books and things like that. And then since February, I've been working a lot less, so I've had a lot more time um, to write but I haven't actually necessarily found that easier. I have to admit it's taken me a little while, I think, to get into the rhythm of having more time and using it wisely yeah so um I mean I have you know i've I've gotten a manuscript written which was the only deadline I had to worry about, so it got done, but I definitely feel like the way it got done wasn't as easy as it could have been based on the amount of extra time I suddenly had in my week um but I think that's just an adjustment, I think um. A lot of people sort of have said to me that they they struggle going from writing around a full-time work or family or whatever to suddenly having writing be their sort of main focus because it sort of requires a different headspace. Um, You have to focus for longer and that can be quite challenging, especially for someone like me that is quite, I'm quite extroverted and I get quite easily distracted. And so pinning myself to a seat for a couple of hours is something I actually find quite hard. Wow. So um yeah I have to give myself lots of little mini deadlines um, to work toward because the one big one just doesn't sort of yeah. compute in my head really. Um so yeah how, it's been How do you do, interesting. do the mini
1: yeah. d- How do you do the mini deadline? Do you give yourself a reward or something? How do you like is it or it just? More, hey, I'm gonna write um, 500 words by lunchtime. Yeah,
2: it is word count based. I always think it's really funny. It's word count based up until I have too many words, and then I'm trying to cut them. So it's like mm. this weird seesaw <laughs> so where I'm desperately trying to get all the words down, and then I find myself tipping the other way where I'm trying to cut them all out. Um, but yeah, initially it is word count based, and I just try to have either a daily or a weekly word um, target, and I also do do uh, a sort of a bit of a time-based challenge for myself in the day where I'll sort of go, right, I'm going to write for the next 90 minutes and no no Wi-Fi, no nothing, you know, especially if I'm at the library or somewhere like Mm. that and that's just it. So it doesn't matter if I run out of words or my phone rings or whatever, I'm just 90 minutes, I'm just writing. Um, And then I guess the rewards can be, I mean, I don't even really think about them as rewards, but it's like (laughs) get a bit of a break, go for a little walk, have another coffee. Right. um, And then just trying to break up the day so that it's really productive and purposeful. Mm. Um, But it does depend on where I'm at in the writing as well. So I find that quite easy when I'm, you know, sort of doing the first crazy draft. But then when I'm editing, it can be much slower and it's really just about fixing whatever needs to be fixed. So Mm. it's a
1: bit murkier
2: by that point.
1: And Um, so do you call yourself a full-time writer
2: now? Uh, no, I'm still working, um, in advertising, but just in a, in a much reduced capacity. So I would say I'm a most
1: time writer. (laughs) Yeah. But is that because Um, so that you can focus on your writing? Is that the reason?
2: Yeah. I just once, I guess once I knew that the, a third book was, Mm. um, going to be required in this series, and then also I'm writing a standalone next year. Um, I just, yeah, which will be, interesting I had to mm-hmm. um, speak to my work colleagues and just I guess come to a different arrangement with them yeah. because it was just clearly going to Great. be quite hard to yeah fit it all in so, so I still work with them but not as much.
1: Right when's the
2: third book coming out then? Uh, well I'm, I'm not 100% sure but it probably will come out um, in late May again which is what okay. the other two have have been in terms of publication date. And cool. then the standalone will be in twenty twenty. All being yep. well.
1: <laughs> and have you already are you are you already writing the standalone? Um, no, not not in earnest. I
2: um, actually had to pitch a synopsis for both the third Gemma book and the standalone, which I found really hard. Being someone that doesn't plot particularly well, yep. um, so that actually took me ages doing those um, pitches. Like it was only five thousand words each, but I really found them quite challenging. Um, and, uh, I haven't started, I haven't worked on it beyond that. So it's in, it's in pitch form and it has, um, I think three sample chapters and a bit of a character sort of outline, but, um, that's, that's so, as far as it's gone so far.
1: Did the publisher ask for a standalone or did you want to write a standalone and is it crime?
2: Uh, yes, it's definitely crime. Um, the My publisher uh, definitely sees me as a crime writer. Um, I guess that, that's what they sort of signed up for. Um, and, yeah, my agent, um, I had a couple of ideas that I talked to her about and she sort of liked this one and sort of said get it into a, you know, format that I can um, take it to them um, and, and present. So, I mean, I didn't really know what that format was, but I made one up and everyone seemed um happy with it. So that was good. And it was, even though I don't like writing a synopsis in any way, it was good for me to strength test the idea as much as I guess you can with that little sample. Um, So I feel a bit uh, nervous about it because it's quite different and um, obviously it'll have a whole new character and cast of people. Um, So I'll need to kind of get my head into a different mind Mm -hmm. um, of, of a person. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it because I think it's a really fun idea. Very and, um, exciting, different.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just want to talk briefly about dialogue because I think that um, you you do it really well, and that the dialogue is really um, realistic. And what for me, it's the little nuances, it's the tiny little comments and observations that make it really real and really human. Um, and I was wondering whether you – you obviously have an ear for dialogue, but whether you do anything like like um, note things down when you hear them or um, – and I'll give you an example so that we're to- not talking so vaguely. Um, I was reading, you know, one of the scenes where I think it was one of the techie police, you know, um, guys – in the tech department and he says something like I'll just be a tick and Gemma makes (laughs) this internal monologue that's that says how she's like annoyed at the way he elongated the word tick and I thought to myself (laughs) oh my god I totally can see that and I've heard that too and it really annoys me too how do you um you know just those little things that kind of make it so real how do you note these things down or, or you know, um, include them?
2: Oh, God, I don't know. Um, I actually <laughs> feel like dialogue is the thing that I find quite tricky. I definitely think it's the thing in my first draft that is the sloppiest. So I, I actually um, have found myself going back and doing almost a reread purely to get the dialogue improved because it's quite – I often find I I do really repetitive things or I tag things really badly and I um, just do all those basic mistakes that good writers would say is really bad. (laughs) I've gotten much better at editing that part of my first drafting, I think. Um, But I don't know. I mean I think an awful lot of those little nuance pieces that ring true are just because in my mind Gemma's character and her mood and her reactions to people is so clear. So, mm. um, I guess I feel like I know if she's annoyed what would annoy her or if she's <laughs> happy what what she how she would express that. So, I think it's a lot of it's character based, I think um mm. although in the second book i I must admit I really enjoyed writing the character of um Nick Fleet, who's her new detective partner, mm. and I've sort of found him. I mean I don't really know anyone like him, but he was so real in my head and I found a lot of his dialogue really fun to write and their banter oh, and their sort of interactions really good.
1: One of his lines is my favourite in the whole book. <laughs> yeah, oh, <that's> good. Actually, <laughs> yeah um, so um, I don't know.
2: I think it's just I do I mean this sounds I'm sort of probably overthinking this now that you've asked me. I think I do tend to try to picture these people talking to each other, but when I say mm. that, it's definitely not something that I'm doing on the first draft. It's really once the story's down and I've got a feel for them and I kind of go back and I'm working through it and I'm, you know, fixing up all these little bits and pieces, I will often sort of think, I guess, p- picture myself being there witnessing these people, you know, bantering back and forth. And once mm. you're doing that, you can kind of um, add in those little things that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily think after the first time round which I yeah, do think no. makes it feel more realistic.
1: But you must be obviously very observant to even, because they wouldn't be in your head in the first place, like the way you'd pronounce tick wrong, you know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah, I think it, so. I, I like yeah. watching people and um, yeah, I just think people are so interesting. I mean I, f- mm. I, I find people I don't know interesting. I find people I do know interesting. I think it's so interesting that people that you think you know really well can can be really surprising. Um I, I just think it's it's endlessly fascinating the way that we interact with each other and, yeah. I mean, I'm not writing books that are sort of particularly deep and, and sort of literary in, in lots of ways but I still think that even, uh, you know, a sort of crime book procedural, you can really explore those relationships in such a um, sort of uh, observational way and you can bring a lot of little bits and pieces of someone's personality to life just by the way that they talk or react to something. And I really enjoy that part of writing. So it's um, something that I find really, yeah, it's kind of, uh, I look forward to that part of it every day when I sit down to to do some writing. Mm.
1: And um, finally, what is the most rewarding thing about your career as a writer right now?
2: Uh, I mean, I guess being able to to keep doing it really I mean Mm. I would have been so happy to have one book published and of course now I want more so it's (laughs) it is this weird accumulation dream goal but um I feel very fortunate that um I guess I created a character that people or the publisher especially wanted more from Mm. um I think that's really you know I feel really privileged to be able to kind of continue a character on in that way and um it's just I mean I'm still surprised when people say, oh, I've just finished a book or I've, I've read that book or someone I know is reading that book and I, yeah. <laughs> I know it to be true but it's still such a rush to have that um, said to me. So if,
0: yeah. if,
2: that, if that can keep happening for however long, I, I would be very, very happy with that.
1: I'm sure it's going to be for quite a long time. So congratulations <laughs> again on, on the second novel and we just can't wait for the third one. So oh, thank, thank you so you much so for much. your time today.
2: Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks heaps, Valerie.
1: Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There you go, Sarah Bailey. It's, um, yeah, just so
0: excited about her success. So good. And also I have to say, She's so good on Twitter. I yes. would really suggest that you follow her on Twitter. I can't for the life of me think of what her Twitter handle is because that would be too useful. Let me just look <laughs> it up quickly. But she is she does such a great job. Sarah Bailey author. Uh, author. she is at Sarah Bailey nineteen eighty two. On um, on Twitter, but she's very she's very good at it. She's incredibly personable, yes. and she does a great job of being personable and getting involved and chatting to people. But also just some very witty, funny little stories that she shares. And so, yeah, if you're if you're kind of interested in um in learning more about how to best represent yourself on Twitter, she does a great job.
1: Mm, and check out her book, Into the Night. All right. So, what's happening with you this week before we speak again? Apart from preparing for the for life in
0: air oh well apart from that apart from the authorial blazer being dry cleaned mm. um I'm just getting I've got school holiday stuff I'll be I'll be dragging poor old book boy down to the to the pool to do laps for a bit because he has his first surf patrol on Saturday and I think it's going it's to be still oh,
1: cold to well, go in the
0: water. he wears a wetsuit yeah
1: okay
0: yeah yeah because it's yeah you're right it's cold um but you know someone's got to patrol the beaches. Mm, I guess. and you know book boy is out there defender of the swimmer. Apparently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I know. I feel so much safer. I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we we'll you know, we'll be doing a bit of that and yeah, just I don't know, just getting through it. I'm going to be writing stuff. I'm actually I'm a bit enthusiastic about actually getting some writing done. Maybe writing for 15 minutes a day mm-hmm. at least. And maybe that's all I'll have, but you know, I'm I'm I've got some I've got some stuff. You know, I was talking to you last week about how I'd I had this some um, how I was going to rewrite my whole manuscript. you remember we had that conversation? I had Mm. to do it from a different point of view. Yeah. So I've started doing that and Mm. I'm really enjoying it. It was definitely the right decision. Cool. Mm.
1: So it's not feeling laborious?
0: No, because I think it was feeling laborious because it was wrong. And now it doesn't feel laborious because it's right. And I think that's possibly something to think about sometimes too. If if, if you're really like just struggling, Mm. maybe it is that you've just chosen the wrong character to tell the story. And I realized that that's what I'd done because I thought it wasn't going to work. And then I realized I could make it work.
1: Oh, cool. That's exciting.
0: Mm, It is exciting.
1: Hmm. There you go. Hmm. Um, Well, I'm going to see Evita with Tina Arena.
0: (gasps) Tina Arena?
1: Yeah, she's playing Evita at the Opera House.
0: Oh, that's right. I did hear about
1: that. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about that. There's a
0: creative date for you.
1: That's a creative date, yeah. I should, you know. Them yeah. more often, like I used to. All right, yeah. so we've come to the end of this week's episode. Where do we find you online, Al?
0: Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A L L I S O N T A I T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A L T A I T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. What about you, Val? Where will we find you?
1: You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And please do join both of us on Facebook and join the listener community. We've got this awesome group. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and we'd love to have you in there. So many awesome, supportive, wonderful people. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.